Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 14. 2 Samuel 14, and beginning our reading at verse 1. And you'll find this on page 265. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, And they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. So they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please, let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. In your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let the Lord, the king, speak. 
The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house. It did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time. But Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on the face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Each day, uh, there are a list of things uh, to do. We have lists, all of us, of things that are to be done. But if you're like most people, that list of things to get done will include things that we won't get to. Uh, They will be things that we perhaps don't want to get to either. They are things that we might even say we avoid. Uh, We might look around at our house and we might look at the state of affairs and there are things that we know we need to address but we just don't want to do it today. We might look in the closet and see that the closet is a mess, but it's a lot easier to simply close the closet and to carry on with things rather than dealing with all the mess in there. We might look around the house and see a leaky faucet 
and know that that needs to be addressed. Uh, but it's easier to just leave the room and to go on to other matters. But the upkeep of a house is not just something that we see of tasks that need to be addressed. Our life's experience also shows us all kinds of issues that need to be addressed as well. Problems that emerge and sins that need to be addressed as well. And it's just as easy uh, as we might avoid certain uh, chores or tasks around the home. It's also easy for us to avoid the problems that we face in our own life's experience. It's easy for us to ignore the issues that arise and the problems that sin brings into our own experience as well. And as we turn back to the book of Samuel this evening, we see that that is something that emerges. That problems that come from sin are problems that need to be addressed. But oftentimes there are things that we can be tempted to skip over, to ignore, and to even avoid. You remember that David had sinned. As Israel's king, he had taken another man's wife. He had uh, murdered, essentially, Uriah the Hittite by orchestrating his death. But as a result of David's sin, the Lord told David that evil would come up in his own home, that in his own family, great trouble and misery would arise. And we began to see some of that trouble when one of David's sons uh, uh, violated one of David's daughters, when uh, division crept into the family, when one of David's sons murdered another one of David's sons. There was division. There was a murder. There was a separation that was taking place here. There was hostility in the family of David. All of this turmoil was uh, brewing in David's family. And you remember that when Amnon violated his sister, that it tells us that David became very angry about what had happened. But David couldn't act. Whether it was because he was morally compromised or whatever, David refrained from bringing judgment against his own son. And what eventually happened was, is that it gave an opportunity for Absalom to rise up in vengeance and to murder Amnon himself. That uh, Absalom took matters into his own hand and then ultimately fled uh, back to uh, his homeland, back to where his maternal grandfather was. And at the end of that chapter, you remember that it tells us that Absalom uh, fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. That statement at the end of that chapter, though, is a very obscure statement. The, the, the verb or the word there for longed to go out to Absalom is a word that normally means much more than to simply long for something. It's a word that normally would mean to come to an end, to cease, or to stop. And so as this is describing something about the emotional state of David, it is most natural to understand here something is stopping or something is being spent in David's emotional uh, reservoir with respect to Absalom. And so as we come this evening, uh, we are seeing how different people look at the problem and address or respond to that problem in different ways. You can actually look at this chapter and look at it in terms of three people's approach to how to address this issue. You have the way that Joab is going to try and address it. 
You have the way that David is going to try and address it, and you have the way that Absalom is going to capitalize on it. All of these people have their plans. All of these people are scheming, you could say. But uh, uh, the question is, is, are they addressing the problem or are they avoiding the problem? And this evening we want to see that avoiding problems does not solve them. Instead, we are to see that God has a plan for dealing with our mess, and we are to address uh, that sin in God's way. We want to then look at this chapter in uh, two thoughts. We want to think about a plan to avoid the problem and a plan to address the problem. First, we have the plan to avoid the problem. And again, we can look at this in terms of how Joab is responding and the way that David is responding uh, to what has taken place. Uh, It tells us there at the beginning of the chapter that Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and told her what to say. Joab is reintroduced here into the narrative of David's life. Joab was a commander in David's army. He was also David's nephew. Uh, Joab showed himself to being someone who was committed uh, to David's kingdom. Uh, He was someone who was uh, fighting for David's cause, oftentimes as best as he knew how. But Joab also showed himself to being the kind of man that would take matters into his own hand. Uh, We probably all know people like this, people who look at a problem and then decide how to fix that problem and take it upon themselves to fix it the way that they deem the best way to fix it. That was Joab. Uh, You remember that Joab was the man who murdered Abner. Uh, Perhaps he would have said it was in the best interest of David's kingdom, but it was ultimately to get vengeance for the death of his own brother. Joab fixed things in his own way. He took matters into his own hand. And here we see Joab doing that very thing. He sees a problem, and he's going to fix it. What's the problem? The problem is, according to Joab, that the apparent heir to the throne is in exile. That Amnon is dead. And so the next most likely candidate to be David's successor is Absalom. David is a much older man by this point. And Joab is thinking about the best interests of the kingdom of David. He's thinking about the nation of Israel. And seeing this need for transition, this need for stability in the kingdom of Israel, Joab sees a real problem. There needs to be a smooth succession if the nation is to be strong. And so seeing Absalom in a foreign uh, land is not good for the health and the unity of the kingdom. And so it tells us here uh, that he knew something of the problem, but also that he knew something about the situation in David as well. Uh, It tells us there that he knew uh, the mind of the king uh, there in verse 1, that he discerned something about the emotional state of David. Again, you go back to the end of chapter 13 there, and it tells us that the spirit of the king longed to go out to David. But if we understand that to mean that something is ceasing in David, that could mean that the hostility in David had ceased. The anger in David had subsided. Or at the very least, Joab looks at David and he's discerning that there's some kind of conflict in the king. He wishes things were better between him and Absalom. This is not what he wanted. 
And Joab sees that and he thinks, I can make this work. I can bring the two of them together. They just need to be brought together. And I can patch that myself. And so he arranges for having this woman come to the king. And he thinks that through this whole endeavor, it'll restore the king and his son. He will bring back that sense of uh, unity in the royal family. And so this woman comes, a woman of Tekoa. She would have been a few miles from Jerusalem. She's described as a, a wise woman or a clever woman, just as Jonadab was described as a crafty or a clever man when uh, Amnon came to him. And this woman is to say the words that Joab gives her. So she comes to him with this scenario, and she tells him that she is a widow. Her husband is dead, but she had two sons. And one of the sons rose up and killed the other one. And now as a result, the whole clan, the family, wants this surviving son to be put to death because that's what the law requires. Because those who shed blood will have their own blood shed. But this woman says there's other factors to consider. There's other things that you need to think about with this situation. What are those other mitigating factors? Well, she tells them that first, this wasn't premeditated. Just as our own law in Canada, which is based on the law of God, the law of God makes a distinction between murder and manslaughter, between intentionality and forethought and something that arises in the heat of the moment. And here the woman says something happened in the heat of the moment. They were quarreling. No one separated them. And one of them struck the other one and he died. So this wasn't something intentional. This was just something that happened because no one separated them. But then she goes on and she says, not only was it not uh, premeditated, but she says, what has happened is, is that the, the son that is surviving, if he's put to death, he's the heir. He's the one that's supposed to inherit. He's the one who is to receive the inheritance. He's the one to whom uh, what is to be succeeded and passed on. It's his. And now the family might come talking about justice. But it seems that what was his inheritance is now going to be taken from him and given to others. And so she says, this is the heir we're talking about here. Furthermore, she appeals to the fact that this son that survives is her, her, the coal of her heart. This is the, the, the one source of light and comfort, the one source of, uh, uh, of warmth left in her life to, to deprive her of her remaining son would take away all comfort in her own life. So it's an appeal to mercy. And then finally, she appeals to the consequences of this. If they killed her remaining son, then there would be no remaining family. Her family would be wiped out. There would be no succession. Something that in the old covenant was very much guarded, the importance of continuation, of preserving family lines, uh, uh, and uh, families altogether. So this woman comes with this scenario that says something happened. But before you think this is how it should be handled, she raises these other factors uh, to David. And David gives the order that he will attend this situation, but the woman's not satisfied. She insists that the, the responsibility, the guilt, will be upon her. David then uh, uh, makes the judgment that no one will touch her. But she's, she's persistent. And she insists that David gives the judgment clearly to her. 
by under oath before God, invoke the name of your God, are you going to protect my son? Which David does. As the king, he summons that not a hair will fall from her head. He will protect this son of hers. And then the woman exposes, uh, or at least turns the equation back on David. She then says that in making this judgment, the king contradicts himself because he does not bring back his banished one. Notice she's very careful there. She doesn't even name Absalom. So sensitive is this matter, but rather she simply refers to the one that has been banished. The king now is compromising himself. He's contradicting himself. He showed compassion to her son, but he won't show compassion to his own. We have to remember that what this woman here is saying is the words of Joab. These are the words that Joab gave her to say. It was not in the best interest, uh, according to Joab, for Absalom to be in a foreign nation. That, that's what it says there in verse 13. Uh, notice the woman says, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? What, what the king is doing is not good for the nation. It's not good for the people to have the successor living in exile. That's the plea here that she's making. Joab assumes that Absalom is going to be the heir. Joab assumes that he can fix the situation by simply changing David's point of view on the matter. That if David just looks at it in a certain light, maybe David will act a different way. And so all of this is Joab trying to fix things. And you might even notice that this whole story format reminds us of Nathan. You remember that Nathan came and he presented the king with a story. The, the story of the rich and the poor, the rich man who took the little ewe lamb from the poor man, and he was doing that. But there's a big difference that's happening here. When Nathan came to David with that scenario, Nathan's purpose was to convict David's conscience when his feelings were at ease. But what Joab is doing here is he is trying to stir David's feelings against his conscience. David knows the law. David knows what is required in judgment. But what Joab's story is doing is trying to make him think otherwise than what his conscience is directing him. As Dale Davis says, to appeal to God's mercy in a case that requires his justice is not wisdom, it's sentimentality. So when we think about what is happening here, we're wondering, is this, is this godly wisdom that Joab is trying to push on David? Is this, is this guidance something that David is to listen to? We have to remember that first, the parallels aren't the same. In the woman's scenario here, it is not a case of manslaughter. In the way the woman describes it, these two just simply had a quarrel and none could separate them. It wasn't forethought. It wasn't intentional. But in Absalom's case, this was a calculated murder that he arranged. This was something that was given great forethought and something that was ultimately advantageous to Absalom as well. This was murder. 
In the case of uh, the way the woman described it, she described it as only one surviving heir. To, to punish the surviving son would be to wipe out the family, it would be to remove the heir, the inheritance. But David had other sons. There were other sons that could be the heir to the throne. But again, the way that all of this is being pitched is according to Absalom's point of view. So we must not rush to the conclusion that all of this is uh, right and good, even though it may have the sound of being plausible or it may appeal to us in part. Rather, we are to realize that what is being pushed on David here is something that Joab thinks is the way to fix things. Joab thinks he can bring them back simply by uh, pushing matters uh, under the water or pushing them under the bridge. The woman goes on. She says that we must all die. Her point is is that Amnon is dead, and there's no taking that back. We can't correct what has happened in the past. And she says it is like water that has spilled. Uh, You have a glass of water, and it spills on the floor. That's, That's what has happened. You can only respond now to that reality. And so Joab is trying to get David to say, Amnon's dead. What has happened has happened. But let's be realistic and move forward with the way things are now. Make a judgment based on the present, not on the past. And so all of this is being uh, pushed on uh, to David. He goes on uh, in, uh, in that section uh, in saying, uh, we must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, which is not strictly true uh, when we read other words uh, that God does take life. But what is being tried to be emphasized there is is that God is the giver of life. And Joab is wanting to appeal to God here to make David think about mercy, to think about preserving life in this situation. He goes on and very craftily he says, uh, it cannot be gathered up again. Uh, uh, He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Joab, as David's nephew, knows David's experience. He knows that David was one who was banished. He was banished under Saul. David knows what it's like to live in exile. He went through it. But he also knows that God brought him through it. And Joab here craftily declares this message to David. David, you were banished once. God brought you back. Can't you bring back someone else who's been banished, even if it was self-imposed? Can't you bring them back, David, and move forward as one? So there's this plan that is being orchestrated uh, by Absalom or by Joab here to bring back uh, to bring back uh, Absalom. Joab's attempt to address the problem of the separation between the king and the son, but the way that Joab is attempting to fix things is ultimately only going to make things worse, as we will see in the future. And part of the reason that Joab's plan won't work is because it doesn't actually address the issue. Joab is just forcing them back together. But there's no addressing of the problem of what has happened. Joab is just saying, move forward. And ultimately, we see that It'll become toxic whenever they do come back together. There's also the plan of David in this section. 
Whereas Joab avoided the issue of what Absalom has done. David's plan is a little bit different. David uh, just wants to avoid the person himself. It tells us in verse 21 uh, that when he granted uh, Joab's request, that he uh, allowed him to come back. Uh, but then David tells him that when he comes back, he must dwell in his own house. He is not to come into his own presence. So Joab did what he did because he was trying to change the course of things. He was trying to fix things by manipulating the, the scenario, by, by forcing uh, these two back together. But it tells us that David then changes the table again. He changes the course of things again because he says when he comes back, he's not to be in the royal court. He's not to see my face. And so when he comes back to Jerusalem, he lives in his own house for another two years. And so, uh, uh, again, matters are not addressed. Uh, David could not bring himself to dealing with his son. Uh, instead, he intended to avoid him. Like looking at that messy closet, David just closes the door. He just walks out of the room rather than facing his son. And that might seem strange, but we can all look at relationships that have been severed by sin. And those relationships that have been strained or separated by sin can be long-standing. Years, in this case, five years and there's no interaction. That sin has taken its toll on both of them, and they're not coming together again. David could not bring himself to making a judgment on Absalom's case. Was he a murderer and therefore to be executed? Or was he justified in killing his brother when David himself would not act? And David himself is paralyzed uh, in this situation, he can't, he can't come to a judgment. Uh, and so he simply avoids the issue altogether. It's easier to just avoid the problems. And so David does. David simply doesn't want to decide on the matter and doesn't want to make a decision. And we see that uh, again in our own life's experience. We may try to avoid addressing problems in our own life experience, but that doesn't mean that they go away. Sin happens, and we cannot move forward according to what God would have us to do in a situation uh, unless we acknowledge God's ways. Otherwise, we'll just become emotionally paralyzed. How do I respond, and why do I respond the way that I do? Sin may be something that has separated you from family members. Sin may be something that has caused you to go years without talking to other people. We see that happening here. Sin has made things complicated, and it can be easier to just avoid those relationships. Absalom became annoyed at what was happening. It tells us that after two years, he sent for Joab. At this point, it seems that Joab realizes that David is not intending to be reconciled or to deal with his son. And so Joab is not going to go to Absalom here. Absalom calls him a second time, and again, Joab is not going to get involved. And so eventually Absalom sets his field on fire, uh, which gets his attention. Absalom himself intends to be heard, and he demands to be brought into the presence of the king. He demands to be recognized in the royal court. 
Absalom here is again uh, uh, demanding uh, to be uh, uh, restored before the king. And he's quite confident that he will be because he's already been restored, right? He's already been welcomed back into the land of Jerusalem, which suggests that he has been justified in what he's been doing. He's been living there for two years. But more than that, he's greatly praised in the, in the nation of Israel. No one was as admired as Absalom. And so he has the people behind him as well. And so Absalom demands to be brought before the king for judgment, knowing and very confident that he has uh, the favor on his side. So Joab went to the king, and we're told that Absalom was summoned, and he came down and bowed and kissed. Uh, he bowed before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. And so at the end of this, we might actually think, there, it's all done. They've been brought back together. Joab's work was realized. And yet it's only the appearance of it. It's only, it's only the, the formal aspect of it that they haven't actually been reconciled because the issue hasn't been dealt with, that there hasn't been a real reconciliation. There has been no acknowledgement of what uh, the problem was. And so we see here in different ways people that were avoiding the issue, uh, avoiding the problem, both in terms of Joab's plan, but also in terms of David's avoidance. But we also see here uh, a way in which true reconciliation should look. That true reconciliation addresses the problems that happen. True reconciliation comes when the wrongs that have been committed are addressed and not averted. You think of, you think of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. When the son comes back to the father, the son acknowledges his wrongdoing. I have sinned before God and before heaven and before my father. He acknowledges that he has done what is wrong. And the father acknowledges the problem by forgiving him. He restores him, but both of them are acknowledging the issue. That's what reconciliation looks like. When an issue is worked through according to God's ways, when there is an acknowledgement of the wrong and it's endured so that it can be forgiven. That's how reconciliation happens. We are all guilty before God. The Bible teaches us that we have all broken God's law and we deserve to be judged. We can't ignore that problem, though, that we have created. But in a roundabout way, what Joab was saying through that woman is true. That God does devise ways for those who are outcasts to be brought back. That God does delight in bringing life and uh, restoring life to those who are outcasts. We see it in our first parents. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, but God devises ways to ultimately bring them back into fellowship with him. He finds ways to cause those who are outcasts to become children of God. He is a God who delights to do these things. God is not pressured into being reconciled with sinners. It's his pleasure to do it. There's no inner conflict that stops him from doing it. It is his desire to bring that plan to pass. And he has done that through his son, the Lord Jesus. What we were reading there in 2 Corinthians is the demonstration of how God reconciles. Not by avoiding the problem of our sin, but by addressing it. 
That, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world by making him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Christ we become the righteousness of God. How can we be reconciled with God after we have done what is wrong? It's by God fixing it. God has addressed it through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus. And by believing in him, we are treated as children of God. We are loved with the love that the father has for the son. And we can be welcomed into the family. It's not manipulative. It's not artificial. It's the pleasure of God. And so as we look at this chapter, as we see the the messiness of David's family, the attempts to move forward with all that has happened here, David's a conflicted man. How do I address the wrongs that have happened? And he's paralyzed. But God is not. God is able to fix what we've made a mess of. And that's found in Jesus. The problems, the messes that we have, we don't just avoid them. We don't just look at our sins and close the door. Rather, we bring them to Christ. We recognize that at, at, in Christ, our sins have been dealt with. And we can have peace with God. We can live peacefully knowing the favor of God. And not trying to manipulate our own ends like Absalom is doing even when he burns the field. So as we look at this event in David's life, it is the ongoing plots, the ongoing efforts to address problems or to avoid problems. But it should make us think about how God ultimately addresses our problem, not by avoiding it, but by dealing with it at the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about this passage, that we would not be simply bystanders looking at the life of David, but that we would see that we too are sinners, that we too find ourselves emotionally paralyzed oftentimes about judgments and how to think through issues, that we too have seen relationships severed uh, and strained. And we pray, Lord, that we would realize the problem of sin is real. Help us, Lord, then to uh, look to you to submit to your ways and ultimately to look to Christ as the one who can address the problem of our, of our guilt. Go before us, we pray in Jesus' name.